Hello, and welcome to another episode of Sound Strategic. I'm Maya Nowens, and in our last episode of 2020, we'll be taking a look forward into the coming year to assess the key challenges and trends that will likely define world affairs in 2021. To do this, we've asked researchers from across the IISS to send in the issues they'll be looking out for in the next year, so we could discuss them in today's episode. And to help me with this, I'm joined by Sarah Rain, IISS Senior Advisor, and Nigel Gold Davis, IISS Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia, and the editor of the IISS Strategic Survey. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mel. Nigel, if I can start with you. Some of the themes emerging from our IISS colleagues' comments mirror those outlined in this year's strategic survey, such as the decline in multilateralism, the fragmentation of geopolitical relations, and the weakening of international norms and laws. Ewan Graham, our senior fellow for Asia-Pacific Security, highlighted the importance of one multilateral institution in particular, the five power defense arrangements between Australia, Malaysia, New Zealand, Singapore, and the United Kingdom, that is celebrating its 50th anniversary next year. Do you think that the relevance of multilateral institutions will decline in 2021 as a result of this year's events? Thank you, Mayor. Well, uh, let's look first at what's happened in 2020, which has been a a very bad year globally for multilateralism, I think. Uh, We've seen declines in nearly all of the key relationships that underpin international organizations. Uh, So U.S., Uh, Chinese relations are at their worst point since the late 1960s. Russian-Western relations are at their worst point since the early 1980s. The transatlantic relationship between US and Europe, more uncertain than at any point since the late 1940s. And we see many international organizations being uh, challenged, not only by rising or resurging powers like Russia and China, but also from the dominant power, the United States. So uh, we've seen many organizations lose uh, prestige, support, and in some cases, even members. So uh, that's been uh, very, very difficult. Uh, And that, of course, uh, has taken place against the background of uh, two global issues, the pandemic and uh, climate change, that demand more cooperation than ever. So we can say we've got the biggest cooperation gap between the need for cooperation and the supply of cooperation, probably since the Second World War. Now, looking ahead, there are cautious reasons for uh, optimism, in particular, and I'm sure this is a theme that will run through uh, this podcast, the incoming administration in the United States will be intrinsically more multilateral-minded. Uh, They may well be in a year that we hope will be one of recovery, economic as well as medical from pandemic, a um, focus of greater common uh, purpose and coordination of the global economy as well. But I think it will be a a, a mottled or or variegated picture. We'll see some improvements in some of the traditional key alliances, in particular NATO, uh, but we'll also see continuing the damage and fraying of others, especially as the uh, U.S.-Chinese relationship uh, continues to deteriorate, as I think it probably will. Sarah, what would you like to add? Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with Nigel in that if you were asked for the sort of geopolitical defense and security watchwords for 2020, they're going to involve things like, you know, sovereignty, self-sufficiency, autonomy. Um, And all of that is actually pretty bad news on the surface for multilateralism. 
That said, clearly what we're going to see from uh, President Biden when he arrives in the White House in January is some efforts to re-engage in particular on the WHO, on the Paris Climate Accords. But I think the trend to watch for 2021 will be more on the multilateral side towards sort of minilateral cooperations of the like-minded. So one of the things that I'll be interested to see in 2021 under the UK presidency of the G7 is this sort of initiative to have a G7 plus three, a D10, if you like, an alliance of democracies. And that's something that uh, were that to get traction would bode very well um, for uh, effective multilateral institutions because they simply don't have at their very heart this same sort of conflict of systems and ideologies that's so crippling a lot of the broader multilateral institutions at the moment. Um, Another thing to watch in 2021, I guess, is the EU role in all of this, because multilateralism is at the very heart of what the EU is all about. I mean, as the EU global strategy notes, um, the EU has always been the most consistent and best resourced supporter of multilateralism. And I know from my time living in Berlin, that there's barely a speech given by a German foreign minister that doesn't mention the commitment to multilateralism. And I think what we'll see is that commitment continued, but just carried out in different forms. So, for example, this year, uh, we saw the EU have high-level meetings with Korea, Japan and Australia. And I think we'll see more of that sort of minilateral forums of the like-minded in 2021. I, I think that's very plausible, yes. I mean, one way to put that perhaps might be more, more regionalism uh, and less of the, uh, the general, generally, genuinely global uh, governance, uh, given the uh, larger challenges in uh, relations between the major centers of power. And I think Sarah makes an important point about the EU as well. The EU will uh, lose definitively uh, a major member, Britain, when the reality of Brexit uh, sets in at the beginning of next year. We still at this point, uh, two weeks beforehand, don't know exactly uh, what future relationship will emerge between Britain and the EU. But it seems to me one of the uh, hopeful developments of this past year against a generally dismal backdrop has been the renewed common purpose of the uh, EU in uh, breaking policy taboos and constraints in dealing with the, the, the challenges of the pandemic. Yeah, and I think the EU, um, uh, not to spend too much time talking about them as a body, but I think in terms of this sort of minilateral approach to fix the big multilateral problems, one example of that would be that if you are genuinely going to make progress on WTO reform and confidence in the WTO as an effective multilateral body, that is going to require a continuation and boosting of the cooperation we have seen to date between the US, uh, the EU and Japan. And of course, not to mention NATO with its 2030 reflection report, also looking to expand its uh, reach across the globe, becoming more of a global and a political organization, uh, a geopolitical organization, uh, an alliance expanding to potentially partners such as India and others across Southeast Asia uh, over the next few years as well. But moving on, this decline in multilateralism, of course, hasn't been helped, as we've just heard, by the apparent unwillingness of the United States under the Trump administration to maintain U.S. alliances and commitments globally. One common feature in many of the contributions from our colleagues was the hope that the new Biden administration, as you all just echoed, uh, will allow the U.S. to reaffirm its position on the world stage. 
Our research fellow for Japanese security and defense policy, Yuko Koshino, admitted that Japan is hoping for the new administration to reaffirm its commitment to the Asia-Pacific security and multilateralism. Aaron Connolly, the IISS's research fellow in Southeast Asian political change, on the other hand, argued that Biden's predicted focus on anti-corruption may in fact alienate partners in Southeast Asia. So, Sarah, might I ask you first what you think the new administration's um, expected approach to foreign affairs will be and whether that might be welcomed? And do you think that the U.S. will have the capacity and willingness to re-engage internationally, perhaps considering the domestic challenges it faces at home? Well, let's take first the, the question of what the approach will be and will it be welcomed? And clearly the answer is different for different regions. I mean, I thought Aaron's point on the difficulties in Southeast Asia of a Biden administration, or in, in some parts of Southeast Asia, of a Biden administration that is uh, going to put human rights, but also issues of anti-corruption far more front and center of its foreign policy engagement uh, was very apposite. And one of the countries that I would look particularly at uh, as a challenge, if you like, for the Biden administration to work their way through will be uh, the relations with the Philippines. Because, of course, um, the emphasis there on the value of U.S. alliances um, and the pledge to put democracy and human rights back at the center stage are in some uh, conflict there. And that's going to be a real challenge for the Biden administration to work through. And that also gives you a sort of access into a broader picture, if you like, of what's the Biden administration going to do about those autocrats like President Duterte, where the Trump administration has actually developed very close uh, relations. Will he continue those relations, whether it's with Duterte in the Philippines, whether it's with Sisi in Egypt? Uh, um, we have one to watch, if you like. Um, clearly, the EU reaction to this is uh, going to be far more welcome. This is one area where the EU and the US are stronger together. And um, it makes the restoration of a more effective transatlantic foreign and security policy agenda a lot easier. Uh, I can say a few words about the, uh, the willingness, if you like, but why don't I let Nigel chip in uh, first and then we'll come on to the whether they can actually do what they say they're going to do. Yes. So there are clearly some parts of the world that will see a Biden administration as an unalloyed good. And I think this as Sarah suggests, uh, is true of pretty much all of Europe, uh, whose uh, relationship with the United States has been undermined by Donald Trump's uh, criticisms and berating of allies, in some cases more than uh, America's adversaries. So uh, healing and reviving the, the NATO alliance in particular. Uh, as for other parts of the world, there are other parts of the Biden agenda which will be looked at uh, more ambivalently. Uh, Biden has uh, made clear that he places a high priority on specifically on democratic solidarity. Indeed, he's committed to holding a global uh, summit of democratic countries uh, in, within the first year of his administration. That will clearly not be welcome to countries that will feel excluded from that. And also Biden's a renewed commitment to combating uh, kleptocracy and to raising the standards by which uh, dark money and dubious uh, financial flows uh, are, 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 uh, are scrutinized. So uh, those authoritarian countries that export large amounts of capital where their corrupt elites keep it safe in Western countries, 
they will be put on the back foot uh, by this. So uh, it, it will be, again, a mixed picture. America's traditional allies will be encouraged by uh, the Biden agenda, but there'll be others who have felt uh, less pressure under Trump than in the past. And going back to Southeast Asia, uh, Hun Sen, uh, another strong man, if you like, uh, openly welcomed uh, Trump even before uh, the 2016 election. Those uh, countries will, uh, will look with uh, more alarm and concern about Biden's intentions. I also wonder whether that will leave uh, the door a little bit wider open for China to engage uh, more globally as well as it continues perhaps a less interventionist approach to foreign policy in other countries' domestic affairs, though there are, of course, questions around the extent to which it doesn't have any conditions to its foreign policy. Yes, well, the the, the counterpart to a Biden-esque global alliance of democracies would be a, a counter-alliance of autocracies. And I do find this interesting, the idea that uh, the world may in some sense be uh, dividing along lines, not of a traditional balance of power, uh, different sort of great powers in, in, in different combinations, uh, balancing, controlling one another, but a more ideological division, something a little more like the Cold War, as it were, broadly speaking, uh, democratic countries in alliance against authoritarian ones. Authoritarian ones, whatever their differences uh, among themselves, share a common antipathy towards democratic ideas that threaten the security of their own regimes. This is a, especially a, 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 a theme uh, that's resonant in Russia at the moment as they begin the, uh, the, the approach path to the 2024 presidential election, which will be the next, I think, stress point in that country. So a common antipathy towards democratic ideas and cooperating on that basis. It's interesting, isn't it, Nigel? Because it's, not, it's a common antipathy, but there's also the utility of a common enemy. So if we look, for example, at Iran, uh, where there are presidential elections due in June of next year, you suspect that there might be some parts of that regime that would actually have preferred a continuation of animosity, as we have seen under Trump. Um, while, of course, not to underestimate uh, the other part of um, the system there that will, of course, be grateful for some sort of prospective off-ramp in the face of low oil prices, soaring inflation and shortage of medical supplies and the like. Well, 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 well it's interesting. We'll see what Iran, uh, what Iran view, uh, view Iran takes. I, I think that uh, they've been felt very, very embattled by uh, Trump's uh, withdrawal from the JCPOA and w- would hope for uh, a, uh, a change of heart on the American part. There, so there may be, as it were, mixed mixed incentives coming from coming from Tehran. Yeah, and that brings us back to something that Dana Allen, I think, had sort of highlighted in terms of what Biden's room for manoeuvre will be, given um, that he uh, doesn't control um, the Senate, and so to the extent to which he will be able to. Uh, unify a deeply divided American political body to actually effectively project coherent and purposeful international statecraft. And that's relevant, um, I think, in particular with regard to the JCPOA, where the divisions on what is the right policy for America to take now are, are deeply ingrained in the system. One point that several of our colleagues also highlighted was the increasing role they see regional powers having in conflicts around the world. Senior advisor John Rain argues that extraterritoriality 
especially in the Middle East, will become increasingly problematic as countries like Turkey, Iran, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia support their proxies in different conflicts in the region. Rahul Roy Chaudhry, senior fellow for South Asia, is also concerned that the new Biden administration may not have the bandwidth to focus on South Asian security affairs, which may leave open room for India and Pakistan to have more influence in Afghanistan, for example. Many have argued that the increasing frequency of regional interventions like those seen by Turkey in Libya, Syria, the Nagorno-Karabakh is due to a decline in the authority and power of the United States. Do you think that's the case? Perhaps Nigel first. I think a, a notable trend is the challenge we've seen over the past year to the, the geopolitical status quo in several regions. Uh, one clear example is uh, mainland China's uh, passage of the security law to change the state of Hong Kong. Clearly, China is more than a regional power, but it's a change in the regional uh, status quo. And that potentially has implications for Taiwan looking ahead. So let's see how Beijing uh, treats Taipei over the coming year and so. We've also, as you say, seen uh, Turkey uh, intervene dramatically to change the the situation uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh, the biggest geopolitical change in the post-Soviet region since Russian intervention in Ukraine in 2014. There are other examples too, uh, just to to highlight uh, one interesting chapter from strategic surveys. Not only uh, countries, non-state actors as well can do this. Watch the spread of Brazilian organized crime across Latin America and even beyond and the ways that is eroding state capacity. So there is a, a, a trend across several regions here. Partly, I think, yes, it's a matter of uh, uh, American uh, distraction and lack of uh, the sort of engagement that might have imposed some restraints uh, in the past and this sort of behavior, amplifying that, of course, the global pandemic crisis, which has just sucked up attention uh, and resources and has given greater latitude to revisionist powers to pursue agendas in a way that may not have been so feasible in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to link it back to our earlier discussion on the sort of future of multilateralism, nowhere has multilateralism failed, if you like, more spectacularly than the Middle East. And we now have this sort of conflicting mesh of international, regional, local powers um, that uh, when you ask our uh, senior research uh, fellow, uh, Emil Hokayem, uh, for what uh, his prospects for 2021 look like, um, they make for pretty grim reading. He talks about a grim year ahead for failed and fragile states with conditions set for further rounds of refugee crisis, economic misery and hunger across the region. Um, certainly, you know, we're looking clearly on the issue of extraterritoriality at a messier world. And this was something that, that our strategic survey highlighted. I think John Chipman sort of talks about it as strategic adventurism, the rise of strategic adventurism. Um, I would argue, though, a little bit against this as only being the result of U.S. decline for two reasons. One is that it's not just about U.S. decline. It's also about the rise of others. This was happening, this challenge before the Trump administration. This is not something that is, you know, growing Chinese assertiveness has been catching our eyes now for quite some time predating the Trump administration. Um, 
secondly, also, I think because some of this extraterritoriality is actually coming from the US. So Nigel can talk better than I can. But for example, the sanctions that are being imposed on companies involved in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That's an example of US strength and US extraterritoriality. And one less controversial example of US strength um, or relative strength uh, is actually the signing of the recent signing of the Abraham Accords in the Middle East, which, you know, whilst not necessarily yet transformational, fundamentally, you know, the text sort of talks about them as a critical milestone in the evolution of peace, security and prosperity in the Middle East. Well, let's wait and see. But one thing we do already know about the Abraham Accords is that they're highly unlikely to have happened without uh, US engagement. Yes. To, to the point about sanctions, yes, no, that's very interesting. The United States has, in, in recent years, but more dramatically, most recently, honed remarkably potent uh, financial weapons uh, that only it can wield by virtue of the unique role of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. That is extraterritoriality, but without a direct geopolitical impact in the sense it doesn't lead to changes in uh, control of land or or territory uh, in the ways that uh, the change of status, for example, in Hong Kong does, or uh, Turkey's uh, growing military impact and influence and presence uh, across uh, the region in uh, the recent years. And, and, and Sarah's right to draw attention to the fact that the developments we've seen in the past year, these revisions of the status quo, follow rising trends as uh, more assertive powers have sought to uh, chip away at uh, the existing order they find themselves in. I do think it's no coincidence, though, that it's the past year where the most dramatic expressions of those trends have taken place. So I think there's an element of opportunism now that brings this revisionism to a new and more active uh, phase, again, against the background of a distracted America and indeed uh, a distracted, uh, 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 pandemic-dominated world. Uh, but Sarah's point about the trends that have preceded this suggests that none of this will go away. We're more likely to see more regional disorders rather than less uh, over the next year and more. So perhaps then echoing Sir Tom Beckett, the executive director of the IISS Middle East office, uh, who highlighted that the the region will continue to see difficulties as it has in this past year. Um, Do we think that there will be new impetus to resolve the various ongoing conflicts in Yemen, Syria, Libya in 2021? Or do you think that the world will be distracted still with with COVID and other uh, challenges? Well, maybe I can say just a brief line or two about the Middle East peace process in response to that. But then you're sort of taking us back to issues of capacity, aren't you? Um, I mean, on the terms of the Middle East peace process, what we've seen actually is an upending, if you like, of what conventional wisdom was, which was that in order to make progress in the Middle East, you needed to resolve the situation between relations between Israel and Palestine. You needed to make progress there and then progress with Arab states would follow. With that conventional wisdom upended, um, uh, the answer, I think, on... uh, 
uh, is watch this space in terms of what uh, will, will happen in 2021 with uh, abilities to make progress uh, substantively. And a lot of that will lie with Israel. You know, what is Israel actually now going to do to materially improve uh, the lives of the Palestinians? And that's something that our executive director of the Middle East office, uh, Sir Tom Beckett, has been uh, very clear in highlighting as something to watch for 2021. I mean, whether we have the capacity for, to follow through on this, I think you know, if we look back to Biden's uh, campaign message of building back better, we should be realistic about the fact that building back better starts at home. And that at least for the first year or two, while we are still dealing without the immediate global health crisis and with the fallout, uh, the financial and economic fallout from that global health crisis, uh, the capacity for engagement on a lot of these issues is going to be limited. So whilst, you know, for example, Biden talks of more multilateral approaches, nobody, I think, realistically expects a Biden administration in its first year to run head back into negotiations, for example, on the CT. Uh, CPTPP that replaced the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that Trump withdrew from. You know, so you can say good things about multilateralism, you can express good intentions, but the question of follow through will be something that we'll have to watch very carefully in 2021. Nigel, anything to add? Yeah, so on the Middle East, uh, 2020, uh, and going back just a few months before that into 2019, has been a period where uh, Russia, which of course has been involved for some time now, and especially Turkey, uh, have made major gains. Their uh, influence has become uh, more entrenched in Syria. And that is partly a consequence of specific decisions that the Trump administration has taken. Uh, Notably, as many, even among uh, Republicans uh, in Congress, saw it, uh, the the abandonment uh, of the Kurds as well. It's one of the few issues on which uh, some senior Republican figures have parted company uh, with their president. So uh, we may well see a fresh view of, uh, uh, from coming from uh, Washington on how to resolve what is a, a fiendishly difficult uh, and complex issue on which America has uh, avoided turning into another forever war. Uh, looking ahead, the next issue to look at is Libya. I think that that. Uh, threatens to be uh, no less a a complex puzzle. Uh, There are already a large number of countries directly or indirectly involved in that, uh, among them Turkey and uh, Russia. So if we're drawing up a list of uh, conflicts to worry about, I think Libya should be at or near the top of that list. Maybe we'll move on to, uh, unbiasedly so, my favorite area of discussion Of course, another major feature of international affairs in the past year has been the ongoing competition between the U.S. and China. This issue ties into both the fragmentation of relations between geopolitical blocs, but also the erosion of international norms and laws as well. What do you think this U.S.-China rivalry has done to the health of international relations over the past two to three years? I might just point to Sarah first. Sure. Um, 
Uh, well, this is, you know, not just a, but arguably the defining issue that will shape uh, major power relations in the 21st century. So um, happy to move on to it. Um, I mean, in terms of the impact of the deterioration, the severe deterioration in US-China relations uh, through 2020, I think one, uh, firstly, uh, is that it clearly helped inform the inadequate multilateral response to the pandemic. Uh, we saw that in the, we've already talked about it in the terms of the uh, WHO, but also in terms of somewhat dysfunctionality in the UN um, uh, due to superpower tensions again. And I think it's basically helped uh, propel others to um, expand and diversify their partnerships, not least because these tensions are not going away. I mean, one of the interesting areas of continuity, if you like, uh, with a Biden administration incoming will be on the clarity with which they view the China challenge and the way that the narrative has now moved well beyond and arguably irreversibly beyond the discussions of what open free trade could do to change systems and sees this as far more now an ideologically entrenched competition of systems where actors uh, are effectively asked to uh, choose sides, something that uh, middle powers around the world have been reluctant to do, but certainly on the tech front in terms of trends in 2021, for a lot of 2020, you know, European, European powers have managed to kick the can down the road in terms of uh, 5G. Uh, they've come up with policy statements that, that make it difficult to progress with 5G uh, Chinese using Chinese tech, but not yet impossible. And I think that sort of muddying of the waters through 2021 and beyond is going to get increasingly hard to do. I think when the history of the Trump administration is written, one of the key developments uh, that uh, future historians will point to is the collapse in the US-China relationship not as a specific consequence of the Trump administration, but as something that's happened under uh, that watch uh, and is essentially irreversible at this point. Uh, I don't see any significant body of opinion or influence in America that seeks to revive that relationship. Uh, there seems to be a broad domestic consensus that this is a long-term threat uh, there are some business interests, of course, that worry about it, uh, but they are—they do not wield uh, decisive influence uh, to, to more than uh, marginally change that. So the drivers of this are, are, are profound and broad, uh, and there'll be more to come. It will be conducted differently, this rivalry, probably in a more disciplined uh, and focused and, as with most things, less chaotic way under uh, a Biden administration. And of course, the consequences of it are very significant because the two countries, the United States and China, are not just geopolitical rivals now, but economically, and as Sarah says, technologically entwined as well. So this really will have enormous consequences for the entire fabric of international uh, relations. And uh, again, as Sarah noted, this is something that the pandemic has made uh, worse. And we have a an essay in this year's strategic survey that, that points out that although the handling of the pandemic has been bad, both for America's international reputation and for China's, it's almost certainly been worse for China's. China's um, relations, not only with the United States, but a whole range of other countries uh, and with the EU as well, has 
deteriorated significantly, partly as a consequence of China's uh, aggressive uh, rhetoric. Uh, and uh, uh, it, we see this with Australia in particular. So China, in a sense, finds itself, it seems to be more isolated now. Um, so an America that is seeking to build a smart multilateral response to the rise of Chinese power and assertiveness will find fertile territory to build new alliances. Yes, indeed, isn't it, Nigel? One of the areas that we're looking at now for uh, increased transatlantic cooperation, uh, whether through the NATO paradigm or simply on uh, EU-US relations, will be the strategic dialogue that was finally launched in 2020 to discuss approaches to China. I mean, so just can I just come back a little bit, just in terms of a relative note, um, uh, if not of optimism, at least against the possibility that somewhere there might be an off-ramp, there might be some areas for cooperation. And not to sound naive, but clearly there's going to be a lot of focus on the opportunities for cooperation under an administration in the US that is going to prioritise climate change and the role that China uh, can play there in uh, addressing some of the targets that are being set. I mean, if you're serious about discussing things like debt sustainability, global health security, and climate change, that involves dialogue and cooperation with China, no matter how hard that might be. You know, this, we're talking, for example, of uh, a country that is the provider of 12% of the UN regular budget. Uh, If you want to revive multilateral institutions, that needs China's cooperation a country that's responsible for 27% of the world's greenhouse gases. Again, if you want an effective COP26 in the UK in November next year, that means finding a path through to engagement with China. Um, And finally, you know, if you're looking at the development debt sustainability agenda, a part of the world we haven't mentioned yet in Africa, where, you know, China is uh, the biggest trading partner for the continent and has an enormous impact uh, on there. And there are opportunities that we have yet failed to find a path through to better and more effective cooperation. Absolutely. I think we would be remiss to, to think this is just a, a U.S. story now. Um, Nigel Inkster, our senior advisor for cybersecurity in China, I think rightly says that the distrust between the U.S. and China over a range of issues has become deep-rooted not just in Washington, but also in Beijing. So Beijing's perspective at this point is not that is not one of uh, significant change, at least in the first few years of, of the Biden presidency. So, so difficulties on both sides, I think, of, uh, of, of this discussion. Um, of course, this also ties into larger defense questions. Douglas Berry, our senior fellow for military aerospace, has noted that both the United States and China will be debuting new strategic bombers in 2021 for China, the age 20, that could further heighten tensions between the two countries, in particular in the Indo-Pacific. And finally, 2021 should hopefully bring some relief with the arrival of various COVID-19 vaccines. But beyond the obvious health crisis the pandemic has caused, the economic effects, as you've both said, will likely reveal themselves more and more in 2021. Paul Frioli, the editor of the WIWS Strategic Comments series, said the geoeconomic harm caused by the virus will have a profound impact on global affairs as countries struggle to recover. 
Do you think that the pandemic will continue to be the biggest policy challenge leaders will have to face in 2021? Or will other priorities undermine efforts to focus on the recovery? I think going back to this tussle that we've seen or that we've had in our discussion uh, over the past uh, 30 minutes or so about capacity versus uh, the range of issues that will need to be addressed in the next year. Perhaps, Nigel, could you go first? Yes, 2020 has been the year of the pandemic and 2021 we must also all, all hope will be the year of recovery, both medically, but also, as you say, economically. Enormous debts have been incurred in dealing with the economic consequences. It will not be quick or easy, as, as Paul mentioned in the comment you just quoted, uh, to, uh, to handle that. Will there need to be a second uh, deleveraging after the, uh, after the, uh, the 2008 global uh, financial crash, which, of course, imposed austerity in some parts of the world. So it, it will be a, a, a difficult time. Uh, uh, let's hope, too, that global governance institutions can step up to this. Again, this is, this is something Sarah knows well, but it seems to me the EU uh, has been a success story so far in handling uh, the new demands, uh, economic and financial, that the pandemic uh, has imposed. As for other issues that might uh, challenge this for attention and distract the world or parts of it, uh, it's always interesting but difficult to try to spot the black swans before they've, they, they've flown. Uh, I personally worry about Russia. So uh, the issue increasingly dominating Russian domestic uh, and foreign policy is the approach to the 2024 election. Russia is becoming domestically more repressive and uh, externally more unpredictable. Uh, I do think that's something to worry about. We get new uh, information all the time about the uh, Russian investment in the capacities to cause trouble abroad and to repress at home. Literally this week, uh, we've had extraordinary revelations about the extent of the uh, uh, persecution of Alexei Navalny, uh, a recent, uh, one of the leading op opposition leaders. And it turns out more than one attempt to kill him with Novichok. We've also seen the Russian hacking of uh, American uh, uh, federal institutions, including security ones, on a hitherto unsuspected scale. Uh, Russia will always surprise you. Putin, I think, takes delight in surprising and disconcerting certainly the West. So let's keep an eye on that too. Yeah, and Nigel's right. I mean, events have a habit of undermining plans. Uh, if we'd been recording this podcast at the end of last year, we could have come up with a series of uh, things to watch. And of course, the watch, uh, what we should have all been watching was uh, the outbreak uh, in Wuhan of uh, what turns out to be COVID-19. Um, uh, so where will those events distract um, from the intentions to focus on uh, the economic recovery? Uh, Emil would argue our senior fellow um, for Middle East would say that the Middle East can always be relied upon to provide a crisis or two. Um, we have Rahul Roy Chowdhury, our South Asia fellow, highlighting worsening uh, India-Pakistan tensions. And then, of course, um, our good old friends in the DPRK, who can normally be relied upon to provide an early test of any incoming uh, US president. 
Dana Allen, of course, the editor of the WIWS Survival Series, noted that the fight against climate change has largely fallen off the international agenda during the past year. Sarah, do you think that we'll see a renewed focus on fighting climate change in 2021? You already mentioned that any movement towards this will need to include China. Uh, I think that's absolutely the intention. I mean, certainly sitting here recording this in the UK, which will host COP26, uh, the intention is to put... uh, the focus on climate change and a green recovery program together. Likewise, in the EU, von der Leyen's flagship program for her new commission uh, before Corona came along and distracted was always about this European Green Deal. We saw in the December meeting of the EU an agreement uh, for them to voluntarily raise the level of their ambition with regard to greenhouse gas reduction from a target of decreasing it by 40% by 2030 to at least 55%. We know that Anthony Blinken, before he was appointed as Secretary of State in the US, uh, before he was nominated rather as Secretary of State in the US, had highlighted uh, environmental issues as one area where the US and EU and Europe rather could effectively uh, reset transatlantic relations. So absolutely, uh, that's the intention. However, and I think here Dana Allen, our US senior fellow, makes a very good point. Intention and ability to follow through are two different things. And without Senate control, Biden is going to have to rely on his powers for executive action, which, though formidable, will leave significant doubts about the sustainability of American commitments, given the rejection in significant quarters of America's Republican uh, Party of climate science. Nigel, do you want to add anything? Yes, we do have an unusual alignment of the planets, it seems to me, uh, on this. Uh, The pandemic itself had two effects. It uh, forced the postponement of COP26, and uh, it also led to a deceleration temporarily of uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions because of the decline in economic activity. But uh, let's not forget that before the pandemic, the common global threat that dominated the agenda was climate change. And as late as January of 2020, that was the defining issue of the Davos uh, annual summit. Uh, So it's right that as we recover from the pandemic, there will be renewed focus on climate change. And as Sarah mentioned, uh, a Biden administration uh, will place a very high priority uh, on this. Uh, albeit with the the domestic political constraints uh, she mentioned, uh, the UK's G7 presidency and also Italy's G20 presidency. There is a plan to coordinate climate change as a, a joint priority of those two presidencies. And also, as mentioned earlier, uh, and not inevitable, it seems to me, China's recent uh, commitments as well. It stepped up uh, its uh, it, its plans to to, to combat uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So. And all those major centers of power, you have, in principle, a common purpose. In practice, of course, deliver an implementation and uh, the short-term costs of that is is really the the difficult thing here. Uh, It reminds us, too, that however difficult the the global rivalries, and especially this uh, longer-term China-Western confrontation that we uh, have drawn attention to here, there are always common interests. There are always things that we can, in principle, focus on. And we are all better off if we 
uh, cooperate to achieve them. Nigel, you might have just answered my last question for you both, which is that I try to end on a positive note just before the end of the year. Um, and I wanted to ask you both to discuss some potential positives that we could see in 2021. So Nigel, you just gave a very hopeful message. So maybe I'll turn to, Tara, to Sarah first. So one uh, substantive idea and one slightly more flippant one. Uh, firstly, um, the substantive one, basically China's assertiveness and the deterioration in relations over this past year, I think has uh, helped uh, member states of the EU and Europe more generally think more geostrategically about China in particular and Asia in general. So we've seen this past year, France, Germany and the Netherlands, for example, coming out with Indo-Pacific strategies. We're seeing a lot more um, engagement uh, planned by the UK after its uh, departure from the European Union finally kicks in in January of next year. And it does feel like Europeans are waking up and paying a bit more attention. Now, there's a long way to go until we get anywhere near the geopolitical commission that European Commission President von der Leyen uh, talked about at the outset of her presidency. But the fact that this is even accepted, if you like, as a goal shows some sort of geopolitical awakening that is necessary and appropriate for the times we live in. And you can see this uh, just, for example, here in the UK with the British government's recent approval of the largest rise in its defence budget since the end of the Cold War. So it's slightly odd to say good news, we're all spending more money on defence. But given the circumstances and the world we find ourselves living in, taking defence seriously, trying to ring fence defence capabilities from the wider fallout from the COVID pandemic is good news. Um, well, the slightly flippant answer, I have to say, from a personal perspective, um, is looking forward to a U.S. policy making process that goes back to something that is a little bit more traditional, comprehensible and understandable than waking up in the morning and wondering what the U.S. president has tweeted while I've been asleep overnight, um, and that for partners uh, of the US committed to making the transatlantic relationship work, understanding how policymaking processes, interagency processes working again, as uh, the expectation is they will do under the Biden administration, is fundamentally good news for the transatlantic reset. Did you want to add anything else? I'll offer a, a cause of longer term hope. So 2020 began with the spread of this frightening new pandemic. It is ending with the distribution of vaccines to defeat it. That is an astonishing success story for science. It has happened despite the fact that the search for a vaccine has been essentially a competitive rather than a globally cooperative, cooperative one. But it has been a triumph for science nonetheless. Uh, the pandemic is also an accelerant of technological change. It is probably brought forward by 10 or 20 years, the adoptions of various forms of technologies, especially remote working and, and so on, uh, that uh, would have uh, happened much more slowly. So if we think of the triumph or the progress of humanity as broadly speaking, driven as much by the uh, development and spread of technology and new science as much as anything, then this is uh, affirmation of that uh, hopeful story. There's much to worry about with technologies and AI, of course, uh, is something that uh, uh, needs very, very careful uh, 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 political handling and social regulation and so on. And there are many, many dangers there. But it seems to me that in the long march of humankind, 
there is some uh, some hope to be extracted from the uh, the otherwise dreadful story of the pandemic. And of course, we'll look forward to more analysis on the role of AI in future warfighting from Franz Stefan Gatti, our research fellow for cyber, space, and future conflict. But for now, I want to thank you both for your excellent contributions to this discussion today. 2020 has been a busy year for us and all of our colleagues at the WSS. And judging by our discussion today, 2021 won't be any calmer. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. And before I sign off, I also wanted to give my vote of thanks to Tom Saville, the WSS communications administrator and my colleague behind the scenes without whom this podcast wouldn't be what it is today. Tom is moving on to new challenges in 2021, so I'll take this opportunity to thank him for all of his hard work and his terrific contributions. Thank you, Tom. And we hope you enjoyed today's Look Ahead episode as well. We'll be taking a short break over the new year, but new episodes of Sound Strategic will be back from the 11th of January, 2021, so I hope you'll be able to join us then. Until then, thank you for listening and please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And for all the latest analysis on international defense and security issues, visit the WSS website and follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. All the best and Happy New Year.